The Lord be with you. Let's pray. God, thanks for the gifts of the sacraments, for outward signs of inward and spiritual graces. We pray as we continue to contemplate the ways in which you reveal yourself through church and extra church works, that our faith journey would be enriched and nourished so that we can love you as you intend. Amen. Okay, so um, I don't know why in my head I thought we would just talk about this two weeks, because so far I think we've only talked about two of the seven sacraments, and I'm not even sure we concluded the, the, the discussion about marriage, and we keep coming back to the Lord's Supper, right, over and over and over again. So just as a reminder, here's my wonderful chart of the big seven. Um, and <laughs> it doesn't work particularly well, but... Oh, the, um, oh, I could do that, but I also could just back it up. And I'm not even sure that it's real helpful, honestly. This is like, you know how everybody has like their nervous tics? Um, for some reason, writing on boards is really helpful for me. I went to this wonderful college. Uh, it actually was really, really good, but this was in 1997, and I got a math degree, and I learned it all on a chalkboard. And there was no kind of computering. When we had to write a computer program in 1996, we did it in Fortran, which had been, you know, basically like Sanskrit, a dead language for 10 years. But um, the professor I had, his first language was Fortran, and English was his second language. And um, so that's what we all learned was Fortran, because that's what he knew. And sort of the world works that way, isn't it? It's funny, isn't it? This is an aside. Never mind, I'm not going to say that. Okay. So. Um, <laughs> All right, so, um, you know, I want to return just briefly because we were interrupted last week by something, you know, like High Holy Day, that um, sacraments, there's this claim that has been around a long, long time, that sacraments work regardless of the piety of the priest. All right, I told you that really came out after the Donatist controversy where, uh, you know, frankly, there were a lot of people who said, priests that had sacrificed during the great persecution to the emperor could not be priests anymore. Could not, because they'd compromised themselves, right? And maybe they could understand why somebody would do that in a fear. That's fine, but you can't be our spiritual leader anymore if you've compromised. And then, of course, you know, that turned out some more throughout the Middle Ages because there were a ton of clerical abuses, not just then, but leading up to. Like, priests couldn't be married, right, in the Roman church. So instead, they just had a bunch of concubines, and that way they weren't married. And uh, priests, it turned out, and particularly bishops, you know, they could buy their offices. That's called simony. They could pay to be appointed bishops. They could be absentee bishops. That meant, right, that they could, they could be um, bishop of four dioceses and then live in France, if they wanted to, away from all of their stuff. These were bad things. Beyond that, the priests lied left and right. Most priests and even bishops were, you're not going to believe this, because the only place where people could learn stuff really was church. But, but um, a number of priests and even bishops were illiterate, and they made it up. And they went to church, and they made up all the missile. And nobody knew, because no one spoke Latin anyway, right? So when instead of saying 
hocus corpus meum, this is the body of Christ, they said hocus pocus. People thought those are magic words, hocus pocus. And that's where it comes from, by the way. And beyond that, many priests, frankly, didn't even have any training. And so you know, if you've been to one of these older churches, there's this bit in front of the table called a screen, a rood screen, R-O-O-D, a rood screen. That was removed, I think, in 1976 from all Episcopal churches if it was still there. But priests would get back there and they would treat it like a rude screen, an R-U-D-E, and they would just sort of like flail and make gestures because they didn't even know what to do. They hadn't been trained. You know about this stuff, right? So then it became really important to say that even if your priest was a dirty, rotten scumbag, the sacrament worked anyway. Of course, we're still in doubt of that, and I think we just have to be honest about it. Because if you found out that your priest were a child molester, you sure would really doubt the sacraments you've been issued. Don't you think? I think you'd have a hard time taking anymore, but don't you think you'd also revisit having done it? Well, I would, because I'm a type A personality, INTJ, right? And so you can see how this becomes really, really difficult. By the way, that J is for judgment, right? <laughs> J is judgment. So, so this is a really big deal, right? So we, we, we have this, this promulgation of doctrine that says the sacrament works regardless of the piety of the priest. That's a real big deal, isn't it? By the way, in case you're ever wondering, you can watch the next time the bishop comes. Our bishops, when they do visitations, they don't wear like the fancy all the time. They wore, do you know this? There's, there's, there's the chasuble, which is like the dress. And then they have the crozier, which is a shepherd's crook. And on their head, they wear the fish-shaped hat, which is called a mitre, right? And those are symbols of priestly authority. Well, actually of bishop authority, the, the mitre and the crozier. But you notice they don't ever preach with those things, ever. In fact, if they do, you should throw a tomato at them. Um, they don't give the announcements with the crozier and the mitre on. They wear the crozier and the mitre at certain points in the service because at those moments they're speaking for God, not for themselves. And then they take that stuff off when they're offering their opinions. It's sort of interesting, right? So they wear those bits at the absolution. They don't wear them, interestingly enough, at the Lord's table. They wear those bits at the Nicene Creed. They don't wear them during the prayers of the people. Next time we have one, pay attention. Now, they don't ever wear the mitre when they come here. Um, in fact, they don't even wear them at they don't wear them a council. They wear something called a rochet shamir, which is like a puffy pirate sleeve with the little bands, right? Rochet shamir, that's what it's called. It's a little more informal. But, but what I'm trying to tell you is we still are trying to balance out sacramentality and does it work because of us, in spite of us, or regardless of us? And, and, and that comes back then to this other question when we do these bits. So, okay, um, the Eucharist is sacramental even if the priest is a scumbag that's the doctrine but then i think comes the question does the eucharist become sacramental even if you're a scumbag <laughs> what if you go up to the rail and think i hate god and you take the elements 
are they sacramental for you? There you go, saying the G word, Sandra. It sure would be. Do you know what the official church teaching is? There's not one on this one. Grace, <laughs> which eventually we'll talk about on scale, right? What do you think if I polled the room? If you come up to the rail despising the Eucharist and you receive it. Now I know you're thinking, why would you receive it if you despise it? Because people are just like that sometimes, right? Is it sacramental for you? How many of you would say yes? For me as an observer or for the person? Both. How about that? <laughs> I'm seeing some both. And how about you say no? Who says no? You know, this is really interesting because... Actually, in strands of church teaching, this is up in the air. It's up in the air, right? And in the Bible, you know, there's this one warning about the Lord's Supper. It comes in 1 Corinthians. It says, be careful about the way you observe the Lord's Supper because some people are coming and eating and drinking before anybody else gets there and they're eating up all the potluck. They're eating all the fried chicken and the only thing left is coleslaw. And those people are eating and drinking judgment on themselves. Well, that sounds perilous, doesn't it? It sounds like trying to participate in the sacramental activity could be dangerous for you. Of course, we all know, golly, if we do something with the wrong intention, couldn't we be profaning it? But I invite you to consider, and I actually heard Kathy say, Kathy, what did you say? If the priest can't mess it up, can we? I'm not here to convince you either way. I just mean this is a really salient point when we think about sacraments. It's really important to know or to, to continue to contemplate this. Does it work only because of our intention? Does it work despite our intention? Does it work no matter what our intention is? Now, I just want to give you some, some, some ways the wheels have spun before, and then we'll talk about marriage some more. Is that okay? And marriage is actually a really good one to have this in mind for, right? Because marriage is all about our intention, isn't it? Don't we usually think that way? I, I, I usually do, by the way. I, I do. And this, this is where this becomes really tough. Um, this is why, this whole question is why you've been to churches that say the Lord's table is welcome for baptized Christians of any denomination. It's a qualifier to make sure you don't come up and mess this up for yourself. Right? This is why you've been to churches, perhaps, that have said the Lord's table is open for Christians. It's a qualifier to make sure you don't mess this up. This is why, whether you do knew it or not, when people come to the pew at some churches to sit down, they go like this. Do you know what they're genuflecting to? The reserved sacrament, which is in the tabernacle. I mentioned this a few weeks ago, I think, and it's worth recalling on just on this general bit before we, we hop into marriage some more. 
On the general ordination exam that I had to take, this is like the clergy bar, it's four days of essays. I ended up writing 21 pages. I had to answer seven questions, right? I had like four hours of question. All these pages, I got one sentence in feedback. It was really delightful, right? I'm glad you read that. Um, uh, clergy bar, because in general, these are excruciating, and, and frankly, most people didn't pass them. And I, one of them, of the seven. And oddly enough, um, this is bizarre experience that my wife's had at conferences, not recently. She doesn't remember having them, but I promise she does. My wife's an attorney, and she's been practicing for eight years. And, and three or four years into her career, she went to a, she went to a, um, you know, like a conference, and, and somebody else was like, well, what did you score on the LSAT? <laughs> it was this amazing way to size somebody up. Oddly enough, the general ordination exam used to work like that, because you got to score, like one through seven. And priests would actually ask each other what they scored. Bizarre, isn't it? Now it's all pass-fail. Okay, um, and I was one of those pass-fail people, and I'm most of the past. Well, one of the questions was that there's a local mosque in your community, and it's, uh, it's closing. They don't have the money for the building anymore, and they've asked to meet in your church. And it's one of those nasty questions that anybody with, with two, two bits of sense could see right through. It said, as rector of the church... You canonically have the ability to make the decision apart from the vestry. So what do you do? Can they, where, can they worship in your church and where? A silly question. Of course they're wanting you to say, you need to get the vestry buy-in. Right? Of course they want that pastorally. But you know what? I posed that question. By the way, I don't need to tell you what I answered. But when, it, when, when we talked through that question where I was before, because they never heard it, and we actually had a forum where we talked about the general ordination exam and people thoughts on it, there were two people that immediately said, well, they can worship anywhere in the church except the sanctuary because the reserved sacrament's in there. And they could defile the reserved sacrament. Um, those two people actually pivoted within about two weeks because the question is, if God has actually filled the wine and the bread with God's real presence and made them nourish us spiritually, how can we defile anything God does? I mean, is an Islamic worship service a threat to God? You Episcopalians, you know, you just jump to the right answer real fast. <laughs> In fact, I want you to know that I asked, a, I asked a rabbi to come and do a Passover Seder here to lead us, right? And the rabbi was very, very upset with me for asking that question um, because he didn't think we should do that. The rabbi said, you know, well, if a Muslim asked you to do the Eucharist in a mosque, would you do it? And he was really disappointed when I said, well, of course I would. <laughs> of course being, I don't know why they would want it. I'd like to know, but, but that doesn't, I mean, that doesn't defile me as a priest for offering it to them because I sure do think God wants to nourish their spirits like God wants to nourish mine. I, I've sort of added myself on, on, on maybe the way I'm mentally grappling with this. You know, it's one thing to say this mentally, and it's another thing to like how you feel about it. Do you know what I mean? Um, on the ordination exam, it was all cognitive stuff, you know? And, and, and this is in some ways cognitive. Um, but this is tough stuff, isn't it? I mean, I guess really what I, I think we're, what, what we're asking is, if it works regardless of the priest, does it also work regardless of the parishioner? 
That'd be a really big leap, don't you think? Again, the most extreme example in my mind is someone who goes up and the priest says, the body of Christ, and someone says, I hate you, God. And then they eat it. And again, why would they do that? I don't know why they would. Does it work for them regardless of their intention? Yeah. Well, Bob's... Yeah. But we don't invite the hypocritical to the race. I probably should. Because then, then I could come. We don't. <laughs> we don't. And this case of democracy is a tough one to wrestle with. You know, the, the insincerity there. Um, but when you look at what is happening, it is coming from God. So for folks who are listening at home, uh, guests from the audience sort of said, we don't invite the hypocritical to the table, but maybe we should. And, and beyond that, if this is coming from God, there's really nothing we can do to mess it up. I mean, it's an interesting thought. Polly. Well, I keep going back to John's vision of all the food coming down, and if God made it... Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, so Polly said, for those at home, and if you're having trouble hearing in the corner, she's thinking about the vision that Peter has when he's invited to Cornelius' house of all the unclean animals in the sheet, like rock badgers and fruit bats, and the voice says, everything's clean that God's made, right? So, 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 so there's the piece, but then there's also the feeling that God can maybe only work in us if we're willing to be worked on, right? And, and um, I mean, I think, honestly... We live in our heads and we live in our stomachs and we live in different places of our body all the time. And I, and I think this is a conversation, frankly, all of us are having in our own lives in some way or another, whether it's about the communion or if it's about confession, you know, or if it's about our own marriages. This is why I think it's really, really important, right? Um, and, and, and I think there are certainly times where that feeling is there. And I think the question is... Um, given that I think we all feel like that at various times, is that the way things are necessarily, or is that part of who, how we feel? Uh, the reason I want to share that is you, there's a really great quote by the German um, poet Rilke. Do you, do you know this, Rilke? He says, bidden or unbidden, God is ripening. <laughs> the really interesting quote, right, that whether we want it or not, God's seed is growing within us. That, that is a high sacramentality piece that our intention doesn't matter either. Now, again, I'm not here telling you the answer. I don't know what the answer is. But I do know this, talking about matrimony and insincerity. I'm just going to go ahead and be honest because I know my wife's not listening to this. There are times where I've said, I love you, where I wasn't really sitting in that feeling. You ever been there? <laughs> I 
And you know what? Actually, it's really interesting to think whether those words worked at that moment or not. Do you know what I mean? I, I actually think in some ways marriage is a really complicated way to think about this, but if we're honest with ourselves, marriage is a really complicated thing. <laughs> and, and it might actually be a really good way to think about relationship between two individuals that is sometimes not exactly authentic to how we feel for good reasons, and sometimes not authentic to how we feel for bad reasons. You know? That's why we go to counseling. <laughs> yes, sir. In our household, we have a kind of rule of thumb. You don't play games, but I love you. So if the kid said, you say it, you may not be true at the moment, but you don't play games. Well, and this is a good rule. Bob says that his household, they have a rule that says we don't play games with the phrase, I love you. Okay, which is, is, is a good phrase. And I want to come back, actually, to marriage the way we kind of ended it um, with, with um, what happened when I went to premarital counseling with my wife. This is really great. We went and saw this guy. We felt like we'd thought through everything. And oddly enough, she's an INTJ as well. Now, I don't know how that works, but in general, it sort of does. Um, so we, we went and saw this counselor, and at the end, you know, it, everything, he said, yeah, you've, got, you've thought through your issues really well, which was great. But at the beginning, what he said was, um, you know, what are your dominant images for marriage? Now, I've shared this with you. I said, marriage is a mystical union of two bodies and spirits into one. And my wife said, contract. <laughs> I forget what my other one was, but I know hers was commitment. And I was, I, you know, I, I don't know why the, the, the lawyer alert did not go off in my head at that time, but it didn't. But, you know, interestingly enough, you know, uh, I've sort of come, come, closer to her models now, because the, the, the truth is, right, commitment sure comprises what I said and what I do when I don't feel like that, you know, which I think is like the total challenge of marriage and childbearing is what you do with your kids and your spouse when you don't feel like doing anything positive with them, right? That's called contract and, and commitment, right? And, 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 and that's a really interesting, interesting bit, you know, because in, in my experience, people that don't have that understanding of love, they don't make it after two years or 10. The seven-year itch, I think, I, the seven-year itch did not happen to me until the 10th or 11th year, right? And that, that's when it was a really rough itch <laughs> that, that, you wet, that you weather. Honestly, you know, I don't, I don't know that it has to be beautiful. You just survive it, right? I mean, there's, there's something beautiful about survival, I've decided, because um, <laughs> it allows you to do something great later. Um, but, but, you know, um, I, 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 I think that's, that's sort of part of this deal and thinking through what's sacramental about your marriage is, is sort of the next bit I'd like to see, right? So what we, what we talked about else last time was that in the Roman Catholic doctrine, the only reason for marriage is for procreation. And I'm serious when I say that's the only reason for marriage in Roman Catholic teaching. And you may say, well, why will a priest do a marriage of two 75-year-olds? And they will, right? They will um, because they say that 
you know, God is able to work a miracle. After all, Sarah was like 90 years old when she had Isaac. And, and look, Mary was pretty miraculous, right? And if you're wondering, this is why in Roman Catholic doctrine, you can't ever use birth control, ever. Now, I know plenty of Catholics who do, and you probably do too. But if the priest knew, officially, the priest should excommunicate you for that. I'm just telling you what the doctrine says, not what the local priest does. According to Roman Catholic doctrine, you use birth control, you cannot receive communion. You cannot have it. Because that's a mortal sin, birth control. Now, this is also the number one reason why in the Roman Catholic Church, doctrine, by the way, we know there's doctrine and there's what people really think, right? <laughs> um, in Roman Catholic doctrine, this is the number one argument against same-gender marriage is that people of the same gender can't have children, so it can't be a marriage, because the only reason to get married is to have children. Of course, the great thing about the Episcopal Church is, is we have something I like that, that allows us to kind of push back on doctrine and say, well, is it reasonable, right? So, so if God could work a miracle in giving a child to Sarah, one would think that God could also work a miracle in overcoming your intrauterine device, if that was God's ultimate plan, right? That would be equally miraculous. I don't even know that there's levels of miracles. There just is one or there's not, right? So, so a 70-year-old having a child is a miracle, and a 25-year-old lady on birth control having a child is maybe miraculous as well, right? But Never mind all that. That's just sort of the bit. I, I told you that in Protestant theology, and of course we are the Protestant Episcopal Church of America. That's our official name. Make sure you hear that. Not the Episcopal Church of America. We are the Protestant Episcopal Church of America. Marriage happens for two reasons. The first one being unity. And the second being procreation. And the second one has become so optional that even in the 1928 prayer book, the prayer at the wedding ceremony that asks God to bless them with children is optional. Maybe I should read that prayer to you. I don't ever pray it at a wedding that I celebrate. Uh, and maybe I shouldn't have said that on tape because I might get in trouble. Um, I don't know with whom, but, but, I, but I don't because it doesn't really fit, frankly, the rest of the prayers that happen at a marriage. How many have been to a marriage recently in an Episcopal church? Anybody? Anyone been to a marriage in the Episcopal church recently? So you know what happens? We swap vows. Right? We swap vows and intentions. And then at the very end, before we have communion, if we have it, don't have to, by the way, um, there's several prayers the congregation does. And I'll show you what it looks like in the prayer book. There's this one, and this one, and this one, and this one, and this one. And then you see that little line right there? That's because the prayer book is telling you you don't have to use that prayer. How about I read these prayers of blessing that we do, all of them, and then I'm going to flag the optional one for you, okay? 
Eternal God, creator and preserver of all life, author of salvation and giver of all grace, look with favor upon the world you've made and for which your son gave his life, and especially upon this man and this woman whom you make one flesh in holy matrimony. Everybody says amen. Give them wisdom and devotion in the ordering of their common life, that each may be to the other a strength in need, a counselor in perplexity, a comfort in sorrow, and a companion in joy. Everyone says amen. That's a beautiful prayer, don't you think? Right? Those things are what's sacramental about my marriage. I just want to tell you this. Those are the, the outward signs of the spiritual grace. Right? Grant that their wills may be so knit together in your will and their spirits in your spirit that they may grow in love and peace with you and one another all the days of their life. That's, that's a nice prayer. We all say amen. This is my favorite. This is my favorite one. Give them grace when they hurt each other to recognize and acknowledge their fault and to seek each other's forgiveness and yours. We all say amen. That's sacramental, don't you think? Doing that is sacramental. Make their life together a sign of Christ's love to this sinful and broken world that unity may overcome estrangement, forgiveness heal guilt, and joy conquer despair. It's pretty sacramental. We all say amen. Here's the optional one. Bestow on them, if it's your will, the gift and heritage of children and the grace to bring them up to know you, to love you, and to serve you. And we all say amen. And you know, that's nice. If it's your will, bestow on them children, you know. But I'm positive that the reason it's optional is because we're the Protestant Episcopal Church. I'm positive of that. Uh, give them such fulfillment of their mutual affection that they may reach out in love and concern for others. Now that's nice, isn't it, right? That we strengthen one another enough to reach out beyond ourselves. I mean, that's really, that's really lovely. Grant that all married persons who have witnessed these vows may find their lives strengthened and their loyalties confirmed. That's good because it's saying the ceremonies for everybody, not just the two people, right? It's a good prayer. Grant that our bounds of our common humanity by which all your children are united to one another and the living to the dead may be so transformed by your grace that your will may be done on earth as it is in heaven, where, O Father, with your Son and Holy Spirit, you live and reign in perfect unity now and forever. Amen. And, and those are the prayers of the people at the wedding. Okay? Now, I will tell you, having grown up in the Protestant church, not in the Protestant Episcopal church, that the reason for marriage was unity, period. And procreation was not the reason for marriage. In the Episcopal Church, there's some middling, right? That children are sort of an optional bit, but that unity is still the primary reason for marriage. I'm just, that's important. And it's important to recognize that's the primary variable between us and the Roman Catholic Church, is that an official doctrine, this is what we do. Okay? And so I would invite you to consider then if a sacrament is an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace, are you willing to share what's sacramental about your marriage? Anybody willing to? A sacrament is an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. So the question is, are you willing to share what is sacramental about your marriage? Or what was sacramental about your marriage? You, you, you know what I mean? Define sacramental. 
an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. It could be, if that represents to you a spiritual grace. This may not sound like it, but it seems like the fact that we have the same thoughts at the same time to me is a sort of a kind of awareness of the fact that we are on an inner level. Having some of the same thoughts at the same time means you know each other well and you're agreeable with each other, right? Going through life, so experiencing deaths and joys, challenges, successes, right? Listening to each other, helping you, helping understand, being there with each other no matter what. Yes, ma'am. To me, that just, uh, I keep coming back to commitment. Commitment. Yeah, so the commitment to not just surviving life, but to growing together, whatever the challenges may be. Mm -hmm. And actually the response of the bride and groom, if you at a wedding, is I will. With God's help. With God's help. So it's yeah. not I do, but I will. Yeah, that's good. The response for people at home is not I do, but, but we will. We will. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it occurred to me that... that, that uh, and by the way, this isn't the final answer. I don't mean that. But when I think about my relationship, the things that are most interested is that, that we're committed to unity, especially in the face of diversity. And that can be work, but you know, we're also committed to being interested in each other, even when we don't feel like it. And we're committed to supporting each other, but we're also committed to supporting each other joyfully. And we're committed to being there when it matters, for better and for worse, right? Anything else in your heads? Just a little bit in terms of judging whether it's okay to open up these rooms for things that people who may even say when they're, I don't believe in this. We don't know how God works through that. Yeah. 
Yeah, so what Ellen said is, and, and you created a great bridge for kind of what I wanted to take us to a few other places here, is, is that, um, you know, we, we don't always know when somebody comes what their intention is. And so to allow them to have that experience of God that, that frankly, we don't understand becomes really, really important because when we say you can't have it, right, we're, we're maybe saying you're not worthy of it, right, or, or your experience doesn't match ours. And, and we might be making a grave mistake when we prohibit somebody from a sacrament. And, you know, I think that becomes really, really important when we talk about the sacrament of marriage. I think that. Because um, I'm going to be really naughty and just go ahead and tell you a few things. And I've told you this two weeks ago. When somebody comes to me and asks to be married, I don't expect they're going to be confirmed. If they are, I think that's great, but I don't require that. I also don't require people to get baptized to get married by me. Usually the requirement that I have is that they want to get married. <laughs> and that they're willing to do premarital counseling. I've done a few weddings in the last couple of years where I asked people, why do you want to get married in the church? And their answer was, my parents would really like that. That's not a disqualifier for me. I just want to be upfront with you about that. I have friends that would say, no, let's go through a course until you really want it. But I think that's penalizing somebody for being honest. <laughs> because I think there are certain times in our life where I did things because my parents wanted me to, and they were good things. And they were good. And later I grew because I'd done them to appreciate them as the good things that they were. You ever done something like that? Um, I also think that marriage is this opportunity, of course, as with all the sacraments, that is not just for the bride and the groom, it's for everybody else in the room as well, right? So a good marriage is for everybody in the room, which means the marriage might be as much for the mom and dad as it is for the bride and groom. I'm not convinced that that's wrong. Does that make sense what I'm saying? My wife and I really didn't have a substantive change in our relationship after we were married except we now had the community's permission to use the words husband and wife. Just think about that. I know people that have lived together for 10 years before the marriage ceremony. So nothing was going to be different in their financial planning or in their housekeeping. You know what I'm talking about. Nothing was going to be different. Except after the marriage ceremony, they were now husband and wife, and that was different. And some people use that word in, in a common law marriage, but, but you know, there really is something different about those words. Remember the first time someone called you mom or dad? I thought, I'm like a child care provider, I'm not your dad. <laughs> it was such a big hurdle to grow into that new identity. And to be a husband was just sort of this mystery, right? And I knew I was doing it, but to use that weighty word was a big deal. And, 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 I, and I think that's a big deal. You ever know people 
who get married and one of them's more into it than the other. And that caused you to have some feelings of, of woe for the couple. You ever told somebody, you know, I'm not sure he loves you as much as you love him. You ever given that advice? It's a good way to lose a friend. <laughs> In looking at your own relationship with your spouse, do you feel like it's true that in general, one of you has taken the lead while the other followed, even if the leadership swapped? Were there years of your life where you were completely on the same page about the relationship? Or were those moments compared to years of shared of alternated leadership? Do you, do you know what I'm saying? Now, of course, right, there are still marriages that I say no to. I just want you to know. There's marriages I say no to. There was at one time a, a man who had lost his wife of 25 years um, to cancer, and it had been six months ago, and he wanted to marry this new lady who spoke no English. Um, he didn't speak Tagalog, by the way. She was Filipino. And, and I'm sure they could have had something wonderful, but in premarital counseling, when she didn't say anything at all, when he answered all of her questions, that wasn't really something I was able to celebrate. Do, do you know what I mean? I didn't mean that they didn't have anything between them. I just didn't know what it was. Fortunately, I didn't have to say no. They went and got married somewhere else. <laughs> that was prettier or cheaper. I don't know what it was. You know, that's what they did. And I'm really glad they did. I'm really glad they went somewhere else because I didn't know what to celebrate. Would I have done it? I don't know the answer. I hope not. I hope not. Because I told you before, the book says I'm either the presider or the celebrant, and I always take the side of celebrating, right? Celebrating. Knowing, by the way, that I don't have to celebrate exactly what these people have that I think I have. I can celebrate something they have that I don't. But if I can't find anything to celebrate, it's hard to be the dang celebrant, you know? I guess I could preside, but that just doesn't feel right to me. Of course, we all know that marriages don't always work out. And it makes you wonder, did the sacrament fail? And this is where marriage is really interesting. It's unlike communion in some ways, right? And, and, and maybe the thing to say is, you know, the way, the way I grew up, which as Episcopalians you probably haven't ever heard stories like this, but... Um, if there were marital problems, and particularly the woman went to the pastor for counseling, often she was told to go back to the husband, even if he was abusive, because Jesus had suffered for her, and she should suffer with him so that she could teach him the Lord's love. Now, I don't know how often my own pastors gave that kind of advice to couples who were in abusive situations. But I know that pastors throughout the world give that advice to women who are being physically abused by their husbands. And this is where I think it comes back to the first bit 
is the sacrament working when one spouse is abusing the other? <coughs> My gut wants to say no. Oddly enough, I did work with somebody one time who's, who had a parent that was abusive. And, and they had a very powerful experience of reconciliation in their family, where that person repented and there were boundaries and they fixed it. It seems like that would be wonderful if it could happen, but of course, you probably know couples where that hasn't happened. This is a harsh reality to think about, right? Because if a lady asked me about her marriage, if she were abused, I would probably say the vows were broken. I guarantee you I would say get, get away now so that you can be alive. And then what do you... Yeah, that's when this was coming really big. I went to seminary in the late, not, well, I went in 2000, right? And that's when we were really seeing a change in that. But I went to a Methodist seminary that was very academic. At least that's how we thought of ourselves, right? And, 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 and honestly, we, we know plenty of people who have gone to seminary with the best of intentions, right? Because what they're looking for is something called their preaching certificate. <laughs> not their degree, their preaching certificate. I don't mean anything against them. That's just, they just they, they want to preach whatever they already want to say, not they don't want to be formed into something else. Uh, this advice is still given to couples. So what is, where is God in that relationship? I think that becomes really important for us to wonder, right? Because so far we've been talking about how God can overcome all of these challenges, right? But, but this is a pretty big challenge. You know, in the church I grew up in, interestingly enough, if you had been divorced, you couldn't be a deacon. And what that would mean in our church, I, I suppose, would mean you couldn't be on the vestry if you were divorced. I don't even think they would have let you be a usher or intercessor or limb. You couldn't have any leadership in the church because you were that person with that marriage that didn't work. Anybody ever been to a church like that where divorced people were discriminated against? Just only one. Good for you. The Episcopal Church used to. So, so for those at home, Polly said in her experience in Episcopal Church, sometimes divorced people were kept from the rail for a certain amount of time as some way of penance. You think about that, right? And, and then we, we were taught that if you were divorced, you couldn't remarry. You couldn't. <laughs> you, you, you think about people that got married when they were 20 and had no idea really where life was going to take them and, and life took them somewhere, and then they were going to be denied that kind of relationship with somebody the rest of their life. That seems not sacramental to me either. <laughs> well, it's been my experience with 
So somebody says from the audience that in their experience, the priest has withheld marriage from two couples because for those couples, there was a second mar- at least one second marriage involved. Yeah. How ironic that one of those priests was in a second marriage, don't you think? Ironic, isn't it? Yeah, that's just called good sense, (laughs) right? That's called good sense. Actually, it's important for you to know that in the Episcopal Diocese of Texas, and this is true of any diocese I know, if a couple were to come to me and say, we'd like to get married, we're totally in love, this is great, I always ask them, is this a second marriage for either one of you? If it is for either of them, for any reason other than widow, right, they have to, or I have to write a letter to the bishop requesting permission to celebrate the marriage. This is true. Today, I would have to do this. And I, I was in that situation. I was married five years, got a divorce. Uh, three years I was single, and then now we've been married 35 years. Yeah. But Father Sterling had to write and ask if we could be married. And, and you know, this sounds funny. My last bishop diocesan in San Diego um, this is going somewhere else in a second, too, said, you know, I didn't use that letter as a club for my Episcopal authority to say no to people. I used that letter for when people came and said, how can you allow second marriages? I would tell them, this is how Chris and Nancy have a sacramental relationship. It would be foolish for the church to not bless it. I thought that was really lovely advice. That the letter was really so that the bishop could defend the sacrament of the second marriage instead of approving it. It was really so the bishop could be the celebrant, you see, instead of the presider. Well, I thought that was pretty interesting. Again, I still have to, I have to do that now and probably always will. I don't know a diocese where you can just do this. And I think it's a really good practice for that reason, right? Because there's plenty of traditions like the one I grew up in that said all second marriages are bad. And they love to give, you know, the Episcopal Church heck over our liberal positions. Like that, that, that God can work in a sacramental way with somebody who's been divorced. I, I, I believe in that kind of liberal sacrament. <laughs> By the way, I do. I do. I've seen it work really, really well a bunch of times. Right? Of course, what we say in the service is that marriage is not to be entered into lightly. But we all do know, right? Ah, maybe this isn't true of you. I think there's a point for most couples where they could have gone their separate ways and probably done all right. And probably done all right. Sometimes we like to use the words, it's better that we're together. I think the miracle about God is that God is able to work for the good of those who love God. This is Romans 8, 28. God is able in all things to work for the good of those who love God and are called according to God's purpose. God's capable of doing it. We don't always let it happen. And sometimes we can't let it happen. That's where marriage is tough, 
Again, this is where it's a little bit different because marriage is the only one of these that's got two people involved. The priest doesn't count as a person in most of these, you know. The priest doesn't really count. <laughs> that's what we started the session with. <laughs> but marriage is the only one that has two people. And you know to make two people work together, they both have to want to work together. Right? I mean, that's the, that's the thing, you know. Now comes the real slippery business. Because the Episcopal Church is one of, oh, I guess we're only one of two mainline denominations that has as a national body decided that same-sex individuals can enter into the sacrament of marriage. The other one being, do you know what the other mainline is? Well, yeah, the ELCA and Chuck, then the third one has to be the United Church of Christ, the UCC. So, so there's three. We're in full communion with the Lutherans, and what that means, we'll talk about this with ordination, that means that an Episcopal priest could convert to Lutheran and become a Lutheran priest. Not like that, but with the approval of a Lutheran bishop. Right? And we're in full communion with the Roman Church, which means I could convert to Catholicism theoretically and hop over to St. Paul's. Interestingly enough, if I did, I get to keep my wife and children. <laughs> Isn't that neat? So if you ever see a Roman Catholic priest who's married and has kids, likely they were an Episcopal priest who moved over. Makes me think in my INTJ brain that if I really wanted to be a Roman Catholic priest, I would get ordained Episcopal so I could get married and then take the goodies with me. Okay, anyway. Uh, what is INTJ? Oh, it stands for introverted, and J is for judging, T is for thinking, and N is for intuitive. Yeah, it's funny. I have a family member that I live at home with that is the opposite of me in every letter. He was an E. Oh, oh, oh. First, he wanted to get married to a nun. Yeah. And they eventually did, but he became an Episcopal priest and ended up in Nashville in my sister's church. You know, that's exactly how the whole thing got changed in the Church of England. Thomas Cranmer, first Archbishop of Canterbury in the Anglican Church, he, he, he was already an Archbishop of Canterbury, but an Archbishop is underneath a cardinal, underneath the Pope, right? Thomas Cranmer was composing the first Book of Common Prayer. He was circumambulating the European continent, hanging out with people like um, Martin Bucer, who was, who was Martin Luther's good buddy, you know, and, and he was compiling prayers that Christians had prayed for over a thousand years in places like Germany and France and England and, you know, all this bit. And what do you know? He fell in love with a nun and got married. And uh, so as Archbishop of Canterbury, he decided <coughs> that clergy could be married. And that was actually the most <coughs> radical thing that happened under Henry VIII. Two, two bits. Two bits under Henry VIII. Maybe three. The Book of Common Prayer wasn't that controversial because there's the Roman Missal, right? The two bits are that the head of the state is the head of the church and clergy can be married. It wasn't until Edward, Henry's sixth son, became king that the that the English church became very Protestant. And that's because um, they were people like Anne Boleyn who were very Protestant and Edward was like six. <laughs> so, so he did what mama taught him to do. 
So marrying clergy, big, 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 big deal. Okay, but you know this brings up the other bit, right? This brings up the other bit that the national church has moved on to and that because the national church has moved on, that doesn't mean that dioceses have moved on. So this is an interesting thing about the Episcopal church. The national church has no authority over a bishop in their diocese. How un-Roman, how un-English, how very American. This is a question of states' rights. <laughs> I mean, I'm just telling you, it is. Do you know how a bishop is made in the United States? We elect them. In England, they're appointed by the queen. How American we elect our bishops. And what's that? Two houses, bicameral legislation. And if you go to general convention, what do you know? There's the house of laity, the clergy vote, and the house of bishops. Tricameral? That's like the Supreme Court and Congress and the executive office, isn't it? How American our polity is, really. Okay? Um, but even though the National Church decided, was it last? It was two summers ago, right? 2015? 20, 2015, the national governing body of the Episcopal Church, which, by the way, is the biggest democratic assembly on the planet, where all the delegates and representatives come into one place, there's more people there than any other democratic assembly on planet Earth. Um, they decided that marriage was a sacrament for same-sex couples as well. You might have heard about this. Because, because the, the, the history of it was that really this came out when Gene Robinson, Episcopal priest in um, New, Hampshire. New Hampshire, New Hampshire decided not to wait for the church's opinion. They went ahead and elected him bishop of New Hampshire, and, and, and he was openly gay. That was in 2003, and that was the beginning of what has been described by many as the unpleasantness. Um, people didn't know what was going to happen after that, right? So for a long time, people held on until, I think, 2009. And I was there in 2009 at the, at the Episcopal Convention in Los Angeles because I lived close by. I was in San Diego. And that was when, really, the, the unpleasantness caused places to really split because that was when they decided that they were not going to quarantine ordaining openly homosexual priests and, and bishops. The national body decided that. And then they set up a task force to talk about marriage in 2012, and in 2015, the National Assembly voted to make it not a blessing ceremony, but a sacrament. So, so prior to 2015, same-sex couple could come to church and get a blessing. Since 2015, they come and get married. Does this make sense? What's interesting about the polity, and, and we'll talk about this a little bit more next time, because I think it's really important as we stretch our sacramental understanding a little bit, right, is that um, a rector, and that's who you have, I'm not a vicar, right? You, you have a parish, we're a parish, which means we, we pay our own light bills and we contribute to the diocese as they ask us to. A rector serves that place. With the bishop's blessing, you called me, but I'm a tenured position, right? 
which means the only way the bishop can remove me is over financial embezzlement or something or infidelity with the parishioner. I can be a complete heretic and the bishop cannot remove me for that. That's what you did. <laughs> you, you tenured me. This might have been a mistake. A vicar, on the other hand, the bishop can change overnight. Okay? That's our polity. Because in the mission, they don't, they don't pay their own bills. <laughs> That's about what it amounts to. A rector and a vicar as well, in either situation, can deny any couple marriage for any reason they see fit, and they don't even have to give one. Now, in the past, that has included mixed racial couple. No, not doing it here. They could have said it or not. We can just say no, not celebrating your marriage, right? Uh, that means that in our polity, if a same-sex couple comes to a priest, the priest can categorically say, no, I don't do that. I don't believe in that. I think it's wrong. Get out of my building. Have the authority to do that canonically. Right? Interestingly enough, so that you know the full position of how it works in the church, a priest in this diocese can marry any same-sex couple they choose to <coughs> outside of the church sanctuary without any kind of permission. This is interesting. That would mean I could perform a same-sex marriage in Christ Hall and not even ask or tell you anything about it. You want your paycheck? Well, you can't cut my paycheck. I'm tenured. <laughs> There you have it. <laughs> Maybe. And then I'd leave. And I, and I would. Yeah, and I'd leave. And you'd have to decide if that's worth it for you. It probably is. Uh, this is why I told you that question. A rector can decide anything without the vestry of permission. It's a slippery slope, right? Um, lots of priests I know have done same-sex weddings in backyards. Right? And I think what I'm hoping we'll talk about next time... Oh, I don't know. Is that unpleasant to talk about on Father's Day? Uh, I think what I'm hoping we'll talk about next time is more about this issue because that's stretching the sacrament for many of us, right? So I've told you the rules. I'll, I'll recite them again to you next time, right, so that you sort of know. But I think what I'd ask you to consider in the meantime is what's sacramental about your marriage? <laughs> yes, sir.
think when miracles come from people not refusing the sacrament, you should be very careful about refusing the sacrament. Yeah, maybe I could share you one other story, by the way, and in case you're wondering. I don't have any intrigue or any bit. I just think it's, it's important that we talk about this, right? So no, no couple has come asking me to get married here. Just make sure you know that, because sometimes people get up about that. We're, we're talking about this because we believe in reason and conversation and we're okay disagreeing with each other about certain things and church is a great place to do it, right? Because we're safe to disagree here. That's what I believe, right? Um, but just so you know, there's no intrigue on this. I do want to share with you something else though, and, and, and maybe I'm real bad about this. Um, on Ash Wednesday, you know, we had the drive through thing and um, we did it last year for two hours, and I think 24 people drove through in two hours. And this year was really crazy because 88 people drove through in two hours. And um, the, the, the diocese had a, you know, like a workshop available on it, and, and they talked about best practices. You know, things like make sure your sign's available and people know where to go and, and give people a card that says your service times and, and ask them if you can pray for them, which is nice right? And, and, and then you have the ashes out there. And, and uh, you know, what they said was, you know, it's, it's, it's fine, of course. Some people said, well, we shouldn't be giving ashes out because we don't know the interior condition of the people who want them. You know, <laughs> that's interesting, right? I, I kept my hand down because when we, we do it here, um, I have oil to anoint them with. We'll talk about that one within a couple of weeks. But I also have the reserved sacrament Eucharist to give them, and I offer it to them right? Um, thinking that if people want it, then they, they do, right? I mean, that's the policy in church, so I don't know why I would behave differently in the driveway. And um, what's interesting about that, you know, that a lot of my colleagues wouldn't support, and for lots of good reasons, right? We're all, we're all educated Episcopalians, you know, is the last two years, the same two families have come by. These are families that don't feel comfortable worshiping in our sanctuary for very different reasons. One of them has to do with loss, and it's just a painful place. Another one has to do with something the priest did to them, and they cannot come in the sanctuary. And to see them come through and this once a year get the Eucharist that they've been wanting all year is miraculous. And maybe I give it away too cheaply, but if I didn't, they wouldn't have got it. Do you, do you know what I mean? And, 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 and again, that's a continued mentality I think we have to wrestle with as we talk about the rest of these. If we give it away easy, people might get it. We don't think should. But people might get it that won't jump through our hoops. You know? I mean, this is always a tough business. This is a tough business with credentialing teachers, you know? Because... Because if they go through teacher training, you're going to weed people out that shouldn't be teachers, you know. At the same time, it's exorbitantly expensive, and in my opinion, <laughs> doesn't necessarily make you a better teacher. Uh, so, so you can lose people, frankly, that have that calling because they're not willing to go into debt to become an elementary teacher, which is a sensible opinion, right? I'm conflicted on the issue. I, I don't have a, a clear opinion. I've like all people, have seen people on either side get left out that, that shouldn't have been, and people get let in that shouldn't have been. And that's why it comes back to, can we defile the sacrament with what they do, with what we do? Okay, see you next time. <laughs> Thanks.